Let's see. It's been a good morning, church. Before we get any further, there's one thing I want to do um, before we get into the sermon, and that is uh, I want to pray for a group of people that are working within the uh, Courageous Journey team. If you got your bulletin, you noticed there was an insert there for Courageous Journey, and you'll see at that top box there it talks about there's VIP visits that we're making this month. And I, I just kind of want to put everybody at ease for a second because these are visits that we really want everybody to take in their homes. Uh, if, if you're saying, well, I don't want people to come to my house, that's fine. You can meet someplace else. But really the preference would be for you to welcome some folks into your house and you're going, well, what's this visit about? You know, I know we're doing a building. We're hoping to build this worship and outreach center. I know that we're, you know, trying to raise some money here through the stewardship campaign. Is this one of those kinds of visits? Yeah, and that's a fair question. Uh, it's not one of those kinds of visits. There's going to be three things that will happen at a visit. It's going to last 20 to 30 minutes is about how long that visit's going to last. And at that visit, they're going to do three things. They're going to just share with you the vision for, the build, uh, for building a worship and outreach center. What's, what's, what are we hoping it's going to be? What do we hope it's going to be for? How do we hope it's going to be used? They're going to share that with you. The, the second part of the visit is there's going to be an exchange of information. They're going to give you kind of a packet of some information uh, that, that you can look at and listen to uh, that will kind of explain what's going on. And so they're going to give you that information, and then they're going to ask you for your information. They're going to make sure that we've got your right mailing address and phone number and email and all that kind of stuff. That will help us communicate with you through uh, the remainder of the campaign, but it will also help us have a good up-to-date uh, directory when we finally get to putting one of those things out. And so that's that information piece. And then the third piece is going to be they're going to pray with you, and they're going to take your prayer requests. That's how that's going to go. They're going to say, is there anything our church can be praying for for you? And you say, well, yeah, actually, this is what's going on. And you make your prayer request there, and they'll write it down. And they're going to bring it back to the church. And then we're actually, as a church, going to pray for everybody's needs. And so that's what's going to happen. They're not going to ask you for money. They're not going to ask you, what, what are you thinking you're going to give? They're not going to do any of those sorts of things. They're not even going to tell you what we're hoping to raise. How about that? We don't even have that out yet, okay? They just want to give you the vision, they want to share with you some information, and they want to pray with you. That's what the visits are about. And so you're going to be getting a call from one of our campaign cabinet members or some folks that are on the ministry team. And those are the people I want to pray with, uh, pray for right now. So if you are a campaign cabinet member, put your hand up. And if you are on the ministry team where you are on Bob and Helen's team or Steve and Laura's team, put your hand up too so that way we know. Okay, see, these are the people that are going to be calling you and wanting to, to visit with you and pray with you. And so I want to pray for them because they're going to be visiting everybody's house hopefully over the next two and a half weeks. It's a big project, uh, but we're excited about it. I think it's really going to be one of those things that's going to help bring us as a church closer together. Um, so let me pray for them right now. Gracious Lord, we do thank you for these opportunities that we have to share in prayer with each other. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you are at work here in Bowling Green Christian Church, for the excitement that's here concerning not just our, our future, Lord, but our present and the way that you're moving. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every uh, person that's going to go out and make these visits in people's houses and, and with some Sunday school classes. Um, and, Lord, for them, we, we pray. I, I pray that they would have encouraging words, that they would have attention to the people that they meet with, that they would share in, in prayer with them. And Lord, I pray that you would bring us as a congregation closer 
uh, through all of these things. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, church, that's that. And then also just think about this. We are going to ask everybody in the church to pray for an hour. <laughs> I know. I know. What what is this come to? Um, but March 27th and March 28th, we want you to come and pray. We're not asking you to pray for a building or pray for money and those things. We just want you to come and pray for your brothers and sisters. And so you notice out in the commons there's that huge banner that says Courageous Journey. We want you to put your name on there to take an hour of prayer. That's what that's about. So please do that before you leave. All right. I think that's... Oh, oh, I got handed one thing here. The celebration team, if you're on Gabe and Chris Smith's team or Khalil and Chrissy Flesher's team, there's going to be a team meeting right after the 1030 service in the conference or in the room off the, the commons here, that 222. All right, that's the celebration team meeting. All right. Here we are, come to Judas in our series of friends. Judas. I've been thinking about this all morning. I don't know anybody named Judas. I don't, I don't know anybody like they're picking out names and they're like, you know, it's between like Ben and Judas. I haven't, haven't settled on one yet. And there's something about Judas. Even people that don't believe in Jesus, they don't name their kids Judas. They're not like, you know, I don't believe in Jesus, so I'm just going to name my kid Judas. Like that's, that's kinda, it's just kind of dark. It's kind of evil. That's sort of how we associate Judas is dark. I'm in the middle of a project at home. Um, last summer, uh, my son's bike tire went flat. I've changed a lot of bike tires. I have. I really have. I'm good at it. I've, I've patched bike tires. So I tried to patch it. This bike tire will not patch. It's got a hole right at the stem. Those of you that have changed a bike tire, you know what I'm talking about. So I went to go buy me a new bike inner tube. Go today. Go today and try to find a 16-inch inner tube. They got 14 and they got 18. But there's only one store in town that has a 16-inch inner tube, and it took me a couple months to find this place. And then I lost it. I lost the inner tube. It's gone. I don't know where it is. So there's a bike that has been sitting on its handlebars and seat in my backyard. Yeah, the neighbors love that. Uh, for about six months. Yeah. Six months? Four? Longer. That's longer. <laughs> it's sad. It's really sad. I'm in the middle of this project. I haven't finished it yet. But I'm going to, I think. I'm going to get to it eventually. What? We're, at, we're in Judas. Where did that come from? Let's, let's get back to Judas. Judas. You know, when we think of Judas, we've got this darkness, right? Judas is dark. Judas is dark. But Judas didn't start out that way. Judas didn't start out like that. I know that sort of, when you read the Gospels, anytime they introduce Judas, Judas Iscariot, there's always like a parenthetical note right after it that says, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, or the one who would later betray Jesus, or the one who betrayed our Lord. That's how it ends, okay? Judas Iscariot. So you read through the Gospel, and it's tainted. You know, it's already sort of, the well is poisoned for you when it comes to Judas. But, but, But Judas didn't start out like that. And and that's, I think, what we need to hold on to here this morning, is because Judas didn't start out like that. Now, Jesus, in John chapter 6, he he has this moment where a lot of people abandon him. 
they, they leave Jesus because his teaching is starting to get difficult. And they go, hey, this, is, this is a difficult teaching. Who can accept this? That, that, that we would have spiritual life through you, through your body and through your blood. It, it's too much for us. And so many leave. Jesus looks at the disciples collectively, all 12, Judas included. And he says, do you want to leave also? And Peter speaks for the group and he says this. He says, Lord, to, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And they stay. Now, right after that, Jesus will say this. He'll say, yes, I know that I've chosen you. You're the 12, but one of you is going to betray me. That's it. That's all that happens. When he says that, they don't all look at Judas and go, it's going to be him. (laughs) It's that guy. They don't do that. I think in their minds they're going, well, yeah, I suppose one of us might abandon you at some point in time. You come to the Last Supper, and Jesus announces to the disciples, he says, you know, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples don't say, is it Judas? The, the question that goes around the table, according to the Gospels, is, is it me? Is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you, Jesus? Because the disciples, each individually, are thinking, you know, it would be more likely that I would mess up than anybody else in this room. It's probably going to be me. Is it me, Jesus? And they want to know. They don't look at Judas. They don't point. Why? Because Judas is a disciple. Judas is just like them. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, we read about Judas. It says, Jesus then summoned his 12 disciples and gave them, that's all 12 disciples, authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles, and it goes on and lists them all finally to the end, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Have you thought about this verse before? Judas is not the only one of the disciples that does not receive power from heaven to cast out devils. Judas Iscariot is not immune from this call to go and to heal the sick. Judas is not left out when Jesus sends the twelve out to preach the gospel. Judas is doing all these things. Judas is exercising demons from people. Judas is touching his people with his hands. He's laying his hands on people, and he is healing them of diseases. Judas is one who is going out into the countryside around Galilee and Judea, and he is saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Judas is literally leading people to Jesus Christ with miraculous power. Judas is doing all these things. Yes, he's the one who will betray Jesus, but he doesn't start out that way. Just like the rest of the disciples, Judas leaves everything to follow Jesus. We don't read about Judas' call specifically, but there's no reason to assume that it's any different from any of the other disciples. Jesus comes up to Peter and to Andrew in the boat, and he says, hey, follow me, and they follow me. Uh, You know, he comes up to James and to John, he says, follow me, and they follow Jesus. Comes to Matthew, Matthew, will you follow me? And Matthew leaves his tax booth and follows Jesus. Jesus comes up to Judas and says, Judas, will you follow me? And Judas leaves everything and follows Jesus. But but here's the thing about Judas, is he is probably the only non-Galilean disciple. Jesus recruits all these people, but Judas is listed as Judas Iscariot, which likely means that he is a man from Kerioth. That's how that would be translated, Judas from Kerioth. So Judas from Kerioth, not Galilee. Some of the disciples all got together, and they said, well, where are you from? Judas says, well, I'm not from around these parts. 
And so Judas, in maybe some ways, leaves more than the rest of the disciples. He doesn't have, uh, you know, Peter and, and Andrew. He doesn't have a James and John. He doesn't have a buddy he comes in with. He's not from that town. And yet he leaves everything to follow Jesus. How long did he follow Jesus? He had been with Jesus since Jesus' baptism. If you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 24, we read that when they're looking for a replacement for Judas, they say, here's the criteria. You had to have been with Jesus since his baptism through his ascension. The implication is that that's what had happened for Judas as well. So it's entirely likely that Judas had been John the Baptist's disciple, or at least in John's crowd. Judas had followed John. And John, when he baptizes Jesus and the Spirit descends, and John says, look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Judas says, well, then I want to follow him. And Judas follows Jesus. Judas follows him. And, and he starts out so well. He starts with surrender. He has surrendered to God, and God does amazing things through him, including casting out demons and healing the sick. Consider this, Judas made hell run before him. Jesus says when the disciples come back, he says, I saw you know, this fall down from sky, the sky. I saw, I saw power come down with great authority. <laughs> Judas was part of that. And yet something goes wrong. You come to John chapter 11, verse 16, and Jesus is invited to come back to Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem. And he's going to go there so that way he might lay hands on Lazarus and heal Lazarus. And the disciples remind Jesus. They say, Jesus, you know, we know you loved Lazarus, and we know that Lazarus is sick, but Jesus, they were just looking for you in Jerusalem to kill you. So if you go back there, it's like you're going back to die. And Jesus says, let's go to Jerusalem. And Thomas, the disciple, says, let's go to Jerusalem so that we also might die with him. And Judas goes. Judas goes with the rest of the disciples, knowing that this could very well be a death sentence. Thomas says, hey, listen, Jesus, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to die. And Thomas looks at the rest of the disciples and says, all right, if he's going to die, let's die with him. And they all say, okay. And they go, John chapter 11. You come forward one chapter to John chapter 12, and something takes place that changes Judas. And maybe it doesn't change Judas. Maybe it just it, it, it wakens what was already dormant inside of him. I, I don't know. We, we're going to have to use a little holy imagination as we try to come and piece this together. But, but, but we see something happen in John chapter 12, and it's recorded in the other uh, Gospels as well. I want to look at it first in Matthew chapter 26. This is the story of the anointing of Jesus. Matthew 26 says this, Now while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, Why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She's performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you. And let's pause. Some people go, Jesus didn't like the poor. No, he's just stating the fact that there will always be poverty and there will always be poor people. And Jesus says, if you want to show kindness to the poor, you will have an opportunity for your, the rest of your life to do that. I am going to be with you like another week. And so now is a good time to do this. He says, you always have the poor. You will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for my burial. Hold on to that. Truly, I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her 
this negative sentiment that goes around the anointing, John in John chapter 12 will attribute to Judas. Let's look at that text there, John chapter 12. Put that up on the screen. It says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Here we start to see something about Judas that we've not seen prior. It's that Judas isn't perfect. And now, now, we know that, obviously, because we're looking back on this whole thing. But, but here in the text, it, it's sort of the first time Judas actually speaks. Judas only speaks at this instance and then at the betrayal. That's it. That's all we've got of his words in the gospel. And so we've got to try to connect the dots as best we can. We see that Judas, along with some of the other disciples, and maybe Judas is leading this, looks at this that, that's being done to Jesus, and, and he says, Wow. Do you realize that's 300 denarii? I mean, that's like, a whole, that's like a whole bunch of money. That's like if you work for a whole year, that's maybe what you could save up for. He said, well, why did, why did she pour that on your feet, Jesus? Now, Judas has got an agenda, we start to see. This agenda is for himself. And Judas starts to look at this, and he goes, man, we could have done something with that. I could have done something with that. And Jesus says to him, he says, hey, listen. You know, it's right that she poured this out on me because she was preparing me for my burial. Now, a lot of people, you know, wear things that make them smell better. Deodorant, cologne, perfume, aftershave, that kind of stuff. Nobody I know puts that on in the morning and says, you know, I've got to put this on so that way if I die today I'm going to smell good. That's kind of a dark thing to say. It would have been really dark for Jesus to say that too. She's preparing me. She's anointing my body so that I can be buried. What, what, Jesus? You, you see, up to this point, I, I think the disciples have heard Jesus say, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die, but I don't think until this point maybe they've got it. And a lot of them didn't. I think Judas does. I think that because of this, Matthew 26, 14 through 16, it says, Then one of the twelve who was called Judas, this is right after this event, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. In each of the Gospels, Judas's decision to betray Jesus comes after this one singular event. Why? I'm going to offer something to you that I think you maybe aren't going to like and you maybe hadn't considered at first. I know I hadn't. I think it's maybe because Judas is the most intellectual of all the disciples. I think Judas is maybe the smartest. You know, Jesus has been saying for a long time, you know, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And the disciples are thinking maybe this is figurative, maybe he's speaking sort of metaphorically. Judas looks at this and he goes, this is no metaphor. He is really going to die. He is really going to die. He wasn't kidding. He was serious. His body is being anointed for burial. I have given up three years of my life to follow this man, only to watch him go to Jerusalem and die. I left everything. I left my family. I left my business. I left my friends. I've been homeless. I've wandered around the wilderness waiting for him to become the Messiah, the king. That's what all the disciples thought he was going to do. But now it's very clear that he is just going to go die. I want to at least get something out of this. 
There could be two options for this. People have put forward two ideas. Option one, Judas betrays Jesus because he sees that Jesus is about to die and he wants something. And so he goes to the priest and he says, hey, listen, what will you give me for this guy? Because he's worth nothing to me. What's he worth to you? And they say, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver. It's what we pay for any slave. That's according to the law. That's what a slave costs, 30 pieces of silver. And so so Judas says, well, I guess that's the best deal I'm going to get. And so he's going to get some money out of it. Other people think this, is that Judas maybe isn't so much trying to get the money, but what Judas is trying to do is force Jesus' hand to become the Messiah King. And so Judas thinks this. He says, well, Jesus talks about going to die, but what if it were to really happen? Maybe what would happen is he would call his followers. He'd call all of his disciples. He'd call all the people. I mean, because think about this. This is all after the triumphal entry. When the whole city of Jerusalem comes out and they've seen who Jesus is and, and they're excited about it and Judas sees how many people are following Jesus and he goes, you know, it wouldn't take much for this whole city to just rise up in revolution and we could take back Jerusalem from the Romans. And so maybe if I betray Jesus, maybe I could force his hand into this revolution. Luke 22.3 makes it clear that there's a partnership that Judas forms with the devil before he forms it with the priests. It's as though Judas says, you know what? I need to get something. And so he surrenders to his own selfishness and the temptation of the devil, and he makes a deal with the devil to at least get something. Judas starts with surrender to Jesus, but he doesn't finish with it. He starts leaving everything. He starts surrendering himself to what Jesus says he's going to go and what Jesus asked him to do, he's going to do. But now he says, you know what? I'm not going to surrender. I'm going to take control. I'm going to use Jesus for my own purpose. And so he's contrasted with a woman that anoints Jesus. She's sort of on the outside. Judas is in his inner circle. She is sort of doing something socially awkward and unaccepted, and Jesus is socially accepted. You know, Judas has wealth and prosperity. She gives everything to Jesus. She is literally down on the ground before Jesus surrendered to him, and Judas sort of stands behind. You've got this contrast here. Judas is selfish. She is selfless. She is surrendered. Judas starts to seize control. This partnership with the devil and with the priests is all played out there at the Last Supper. We sort of know how that story goes. Judas comes to the Last Supper and Jesus is there and they do the things they're, they're doing and Jesus dips some of the bread and the, the supping thing he dips in and he gives it to, to Judas and he tells Judas, why don't you go and just let's get it over with. Judas heads out, the Gospel of John says, and it was night. It's dark. And Judas goes to find the high priest's get the guards, bring them to Jesus, and then betrays Jesus with a kiss. And it really is a brilliant plan because the priests have been looking for Jesus for quite some time. They just couldn't figure out how to get Jesus and not start a revolution at the same time. Because if Jesus was teaching in the temple complex, and there's hundreds, maybe thousands of people listening to him, and they go and arrest him at that point in time, these hundreds, if not thousands of people are going to rise up, and there's going to be a mob, and there's going to be a revolution. They've got to find something quiet. Judas provides this. Eugene Peterson says this about Judas. He says, you know, among the apostles, the one absolutely stunning success was Judas, and the one thoroughly groveling failure was Peter. Judas was a success in ways that most impress us. 
He was successful both financially and politically. He cleverly arranged to control the money of the apostolic band. He skillfully manipulated the political forces of the day to accomplish his goal. And Peter was a failure in the ways that we most dread. He was impotent in a crisis and socially inept. At the arrest of Jesus, he collapsed a hapless, blustering coward. In the most critical situations of his life with Jesus, the confession on the road to Caesarea Philippi and the vision on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said the most embarrassingly inappropriate things. He was not the kind of companion we would want with us in a time of danger. He was not the kind of person we would feel comfortable with at a social occasion. Time, of course, has reversed our judgments on the two men. Judas is now a byword for betrayal, and Peter is one of the most honored names in church and world. Judas is a villain. Peter is a saint. Yet the world continues to chase after the successes of Judas' financial wealth and political power and to defend itself against the failures of Peter, impotence and ineptness. It's true. We chase after all these things, power, wealth, success, control. We even use Jesus for our own purposes, but the thing is that it doesn't count. Judas figures this out. Judas tries to cash in on Jesus and sell him out, but the problem is this, is that Jesus cannot be controlled or sold. Matthew talks about that. Matthew 27, verse 3 through 5, when Judas' betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he wasn't leading a revolution, something else wasn't going to happen, he repents, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, and he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. Judas realizes that while Jesus can be given and shared, he can't be sold. And so Judas, unable to control Jesus or sell Jesus, rushes to his own demise. He returns the money to the priest, and he even refuses to surrender in his death. He says, I won't let anybody else tell me how I'm going to go out. He takes control even of that. Why? Because he realizes that life without Jesus is no life at all. Judas started so well, but he ended so poorly. What do you learn from a guy like Judas? Well, there's a couple lessons I, I think we can look at in closing. The first is this, is that looks can be deceiving. You know, you can look close to Jesus because you come to church, because you are in a Sunday school class, because you're in a small group. You can look close to Jesus because maybe you have a picture of Jesus. I don't know, maybe i got a picture of Jesus in my office. Maybe you have one in yours. You can look close to Jesus. But just because you look close to Jesus doesn't mean that you are close to Jesus. And so we can't rely on looks to sort of be that criteria to determine. We, really, we can't even allow on proximity to the things that are holy to mean that we are holy. You know, you might be in church, but just sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sort of standing in your car makes, in your garage makes you a car. We've said that before. It's true. There's one thing that counts, and that's surrendering to Jesus. You can't use Jesus for your personal agenda. That's another thing we can learn from Judas. Judas thought, you know what? I can use Jesus. I can sell Jesus. I can control Jesus. When you do that, you lose Jesus. You lose him. So, it's going to be a nice day today, right? 50 degrees, 60 degrees. It's good bike riding weather. 
the problem is that we have a bike at our house that doesn't work. I started well. I got the thing apart. I haven't finished. That's the last thing we learned from Judas is this, is that you can start well, but how you start matters not at all unless you finish well. So you might have started in a church, you might have started in a Christian home, you might have started with Jesus, but unless you finish with Jesus, it won't matter at all. And so hear that. Somewhere along the line, I suspect Judas became complacent. He said, I've left everything to follow Jesus. That's good enough. And because he thought that, he became complacent, he got comfortable around Jesus, he failed to finish well. So let us be committed to finishing with surrender to Jesus. Jesus says it best, and I love the way Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus says this. It says, then Jesus went to work on his disciples. I love that. I think he did. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. What kind of deal is it to get everything you want but lose yourself? What could you ever trade your soul for? The answer is nothing. So this morning our worship team is going to come up and we're going to give you that chance to start well with Jesus to continue well with Jesus so that you would finish well with Jesus.